The following message is brought to you by Capital City Baptist Church of Port Mosby. We exist to bring glory to God by knowing Christ and making Him known. If you would like to visit our church, we hold multiple services on Sunday mornings starting at 9 a.m. We are located between Motokare Wharf and Edai Town. Pickups are available 709-1000. Put into Isaiah chapter 52. The year was 979 B.C. King David was 61 years old. It was perhaps one of the lowest points in his life as he sat in the courtyard between the gates at Maenaim. Jerusalem was no longer his capital city. For 29-year-old Absalom, his son, had rebelled against him. The armies raged in battle, and he sat there, the scripture says, between the gates. I have in my mind, there's an outer gate, there's an inner gate. And there, perhaps, a hot, dusty Judean landscape, David sits, waiting for word from the battlefront. At the other end of the scene is Joab. Joab is the general. He's leading David's army, and he's about to do what could amount to treason, for he's going to break the king's command. The king's command was, in battle, if we begin to win, take Absalom prisoner, but do not kill him, spare his life. And Joab knows, if you spare the life of one who commits treason... The one who rebels against the king, if you spare his life, there will be others who will take his place. He must die. And in a moment that can only be described as miraculous, as Absalom was fleeing on his horse, as he went through the thickets, his hair, the very thing that he thought was so magnificent about himself, his hair got caught in the thickets and the horse ran out from under him and he hung by his hair from the tree. The soldiers happened upon him and there as he hung from the tree by his hair pleading for mercy, Joab came and drove a spike through his heart. In that moment, the war is over. Oh, battles will continue, skirmishes will happen, but it's over now. The war is finished. And word needs to be sent to David the king. Two men were there that day, Ahemias and Cushi. Cushi was Joab's trusted Runner, he could give messages to Cushi. He knew that this man would be able to carry the message and he would do it right. And so he gave the message to Cushi. Cushi got the message and he began to run. Remember, these are the days long before WhatsApp. Long before a telephone with a cord. Some of you young people have no idea what I'm talking about. Those of you who are older know that when you needed to send a message to the village, you wrote it on a piece of paper, you folded it up, and you gave it to the hand of someone you trusted. And you hoped that they made it in a timely manner, 
and that they did not use the paper for something else. <laughs> you remember. Cushy took off, began to run. Ahemias, younger, faster, with lots of zeal in his heart, comes to Joab and says, Joab, let me run. I've never been able to have this chance. I want to run. Please let me do it. This is my chance. And Joab said, no, stand down and stand still. Ahemias said, no, but please let me run. I want to do it. I want to show you that I can do it. And Joab says, you do not have the message. You do not know the full story. Stand down and stand still. And Ahemias says, but I can run faster. Let me run. You see, he had zeal, but no knowledge. And Joab looks at him and he goes, run. And as Ahimeaz ran, I can only imagine in Joab's mind, he thought, fool. Ahimeaz overtook Cushi on the road. He beat Cushi to Mehanaim. David is sitting there, dusty scene. Listen, if your king is sitting in the courtyard between the gates waiting for a messenger to come, your kingdom is not very impressive. And he's been having a bad day, and I'm going to tell you, before his day is over, his day's going to get worse before it gets better. And there he sits in the courtyard. The messenger is up in the tower above the courtyard. There's a roof between them, David in the shade, the messenger up in the or the, the, the watchman up in the tower. And the watchman says, I see one running. We have a messenger that's on the way. David's heart begins to stir. Ahimeaz is the first to reach them. Ahimeaz comes, and David says, what is the message? What's happened on the battlefront? And Ahimeaz says, well, king, I came from the battlefront, and when I left, there was a lot of noise. He has no story to tell. David says, stand down and stand still. And they waited. And then Cushi arrived. And David asked Cushi, what is the message? And Cushi's message to David was this. May all those who rise up against you be as your enemies today. In other words, all future rebellions, may they all end in the very same way your son is dead. David wept in that moment, for he'd lost his son. But the truth of the matter is, even though it was bad news for the moment, it was good news for the kingdom. In the long run, the kingdom would find peace. In the long run, the wars were done. David would have peace for his kingdom for the rest of his days. He had nine more years in his kingdom he would have peace going forward. Things would be set up for Solomon to be king, and they would have a glorious reign under Solomon. In that moment, it was bad news. But in the moments leading up to it, as he sat in the courtyard, he needed something. He needed someone to bring him a message. The kingdom, the rest of the soldiers that were in other places, needed something. They needed someone to carry them a message. And from that scene rises a phrase that's repeated throughout Scripture and again repeated here in the book of Romans. And that phrase is, 
How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of them who bring tidings of glad joy. That's what you and I need. We need someone to bring us tidings. And in the moment, remember that as the gospel is clearly proclaimed to you and I, in the moment it might temporarily be bad news. But in the long run, you gain peace with God. There is no other way to have that but then to realize you are a sinner separated from Him. But when someone carries the message, you say, oh, how beautiful. On the mountains are the feet of them who bring good news, that bring tidings from a far country. Oh, this can be a good thing. Oh, Ahimeaz wasted his time. Clouds and wind without rain. We're going to spend our time together this morning in Romans chapter 10. I'm going to focus on verses 14 down to verse 17, but you might remember from last week's passage that my goodness is nothing compared to the work that Christ has done on the cross. And so I bring all of my righteousnesses, those would be as filthy rags before God. And they would be, yes, even an affront, offense before God Almighty. For He sent Jesus to the cross to take my place. His wrath abode upon my sins. And He made Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He did the great exchange, taking my sin and placing it on Jesus at the cross, taking Jesus' righteousness and placing it on me. And for me to bring anything that might ever in my mind make me look good before Him pushes away the greatness of His offering. Oh, don't try to negate Jesus' work on the cross by bringing any of your own goodness. I need His righteousness. But even this is the gospel. It is good news. Look with me again from last week's passage, verse 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God has raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the wrath of God. God's wrath upon your sin went to Jesus instead of coming on you. So then what do I do with this? I confess with my mouth that word of faith, he said in verse 6, the word of faith is nigh thee. It's even in your mouth. It's in your heart. You don't have to climb up to heaven to bring Jesus down. You don't have to descend into hell to bring Him up from the deep. Oh no, it's nigh thee. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart. What does he mean when he said believe in your heart? Reel down knee deep in your core. Yes, I believe Jesus went to the cross for my sin. And this is not only for those who are good. See it in verse 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's any single one of us. And it does not matter your ethnic background or your social, socioeconomic status. You can call upon the name of the Lord and He will save you. And then that brings us into verses 14 to 17. In verse 14, he's going to ask a series of questions. Those questions will bleed over into verse 15. That series of questions is what might be called rhetorical questions. Rhetorical questions are questions that do not need an answer. I'll explain that in a moment. If you're writing things down this morning, I'm going to give you three points from this passage. The first one is this. I see it in verses 14 and 15. Here's the first one. Salvation is all of God. 
Salvation is all of God. And He has chosen to include us in the process. It's all of God, and He has chosen to include us in the process. Now, there's a meaning behind this. God does not simply just make you saved. He involves you in this process. We'll see this as it happens. Let me read verses 14 and verse 15. Verse 14. How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Verse 15. And how shall they preach except they be sent? That's four questions. Rhetorical questions. In other words, they don't need an answer. Normal questions need an answer. Where did you go this morning? What did you have to eat? Why did you go there? These are normal questions that have answers. Rhetorical questions have no answers. The answer is found within the question. Listen to them again. How can you call on someone you don't believe in? The answer is you can't. If you don't believe in him, you can't call on him. How can you believe on someone that you don't know about? If you've never heard of him, you can't call on him. It's a rhetorical question. The third question, how can you hear about someone without someone opening their mouth to tell you about them? You cannot hear it unless someone tells you about it. And then the fourth question, how can someone go proclaim the good news if they haven't been given permission to or send out to do it? It's impossible. They cannot. And so see this again. Salvation is of God, but thankfully He includes us in the process. Remember, He did not create you just to be a robot. And then He says, this one will be saved and this one will not be saved. He chooses you, and then He draws you, and then He lets you choose Him. Oh, this is a magnificent truth, a mystery within the gospel. He gives us the opportunity to choose Him. So let's see, what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk through these four questions. I'm actually going to walk through them backwards. I'm going to walk through these four questions, and we'll see the, it's a four-part process of salvation. How was it that you came to be saved? We're going to walk through these uh, backwards. So we'll see. Number one, God sends someone to proclaim the gospel. God sends someone. You saw that one in verse 15, the beginning of verse 15. How shall they preach except they be sent? And who's sending them? God's sending them. God's sending you. So please don't think, when you see the word preacher in verse 14, don't think only preachers can proclaim the gospel. Oh no, God's sending every believer to be a witness to Him. You know what He's done for you. You can be a witness to this and you can tell others about it. I think of just even the last seven days. The last week around here, we have had an unusual amount of people come to Christ. I count ten in the last week. That's unusual around here. I'm thankful for it. Last Sunday morning, I give the invitation. We had two different people walk the aisle. Gabriel walked the aisle, put his trust in Christ. Uh, Margaret walked the aisle, put her trust in Christ. That happened last Sunday morning. And that happened, yes, as the preacher proclaimed the gospel. And then throughout the week, it also happened more organically as a teacher spoke to her class 
throughout the week, and it was not a moment of, let me tell you, you need to be saved, but it was just the teacher putting on display the grace of God and continually great, dripping that grace into their lives. As one of the students asked me, Miss Brianna this week, during recess while they're playing on the playground, I'd like to know how can I get saved because I keep hearing about it and I'd like to do that. And then on Thursday, Becky and I had the opportunity to meet with Emma. Emma's over here. Thursday, Becky and I got to meet with Emma in, in the office here in the church office, and we sat with Emma. And I got to tell you, one of the things that stood out to me the most, yes, she heard the gospel proclaimed, but here's the thing that stood out to me the most in our conversation. She said, my husband got saved a couple of years ago, and I have watched his life. He's a different person from the time he got saved. You know what that is? That's a demonstration of the gospel coming out in your life. And so please, brothers and sisters, hear me well. If you're a believer, you don't have to be just a preacher to proclaim the gospel. And Friday night, Braxton, sitting with young men, five of them, put their trust in Christ in youth Bible study. Oh, this is proclaiming the gospel and you find ways to do it. Oh, proclaim the gospel. And God, in the process of salvation, it starts off, God sends somebody to preach. Somebody tells the gospel. Then the second step I see is the Holy Spirit causes the unbeliever to hear the gospel. You say, Pastor, why do you say the Holy Spirit? Because it's the work of God. As God aligns your life. Some of you would say, I come and I hear the gospel preached... I've never heard this anywhere else. Please don't chalk it up to chance. It was not a chance moment that you happened to be sitting in a church service where you heard the gospel proclaimed. No, this was the Holy Spirit steered your life to be at that point, at that time, so that you would hear His good news. And yes, it came to you in the beginning moments of it as you are a sinner. Terrible news. Standing underneath the wrath of God. And yet the good news was that God put His wrath on Jesus instead. And you, as an unbeliever, the Holy Spirit has drawn you in so that you can hear the gospel. Then the third one that I see is the gospel then does its work. The gospel creates belief in the hearer. So you now, as a hearer, the Holy Spirit has brought you to a point, and now the gospel begins to awaken in your heart. And the gospel causes you, as a hearer, to believe so what am I believing? I'm believing that Jesus went to the cross and Jesus took my sin and Jesus took all of the punishment for my sins so that I no longer stand under the wrath of God. And I can trust Jesus. That was Romans 3 and Romans 10. I can trust Jesus and God will declare me righteous so that for eternity He will look at me as His Son and not as, my, not as His enemy. And the Gospel creates belief in the hearer. And then number four, the hearer then calls on the one in whom he believes. You as a hearer now believe and then you call. You call out, I need you, Jesus, I need you. You don't call on someone that you don't believe in. I'll illustrate this. Can you imagine if you went walking in the mountains with your child? Let's say you've got a five-year-old little boy. And you go walking in the mountains with your little child. And you're walking along some of those, I've been on them, some of those treacherous paths that are in places where if you slip and slide, forget it, you're going to die. 
And let's say for just a moment it's just you and your five-year-old son and you slip and you fall and you're hanging down off the side and you know if I let go, I'm going to die. You know what you will not do in that moment? You will not ask your son, find a rope and throw it down to me, son, and pull me up. You will not do that because you know if he tries to pull me up, I'll pull him down. You do not call upon someone who you do not believe can save you. Instead, in that moment, you're going to say, Son, I'm going to hang on for dear life. You run as fast as you can and go get some big person to come and help me. You follow me? The gospel awakens in your heart belief and you trust in Jesus and then you call upon Him. For you believe, yes, He will save my soul from eternal separation from God and eternal damnation in hell. I need Him. And so I call upon Him because I believe He'll make a difference. I call upon Him. Oh, salvation is all of God. And the glorious thing is, that when you call upon Him, He stretches out in that same picture. He stretches out, as it were, His mighty arm to save. His arm is not slack. His arm is not short. He reaches out to save all who call upon Him. And He will save. This is glorious. And it never in any moment is it the result of your hard work. It's not something where God sees you striving to climb up and you're doing your good things and He sees you striving and He says, okay, I'm going to lend a hand. No, not at all. Much better for you to think in Ephesians 2's terms. And you hath He quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Stay in that same image. You fell over the side and you're dead splatted on the ground at the bottom. And He reaches over with His mighty arm and He quickens you. He makes you alive. Gives you life. Oh, that's what we mean when we say, I don't bring anything before Him. I trust Him alone in order to save me. I say this, He chooses to include us in the process. That's on one side. He includes us as we trust Him. And then He includes us on the other side as He sends us forth to proclaim. Do you realize He could have chosen any method He wanted to? He's God. He could have chosen any method in the whole world. He could have chosen any method. He could have made... You know the sound that a stream makes when a, when, when a stream, a little river, is going down through the woods? You, you know what... That one? You know what I'm talking about? He could have made that stream make a different sound. He could have made that stream make the sound of, this is the gospel. Put your trust in Jesus and you'll be saved forever. He could have made the streams make that noise. He's God. He could have chosen instead that every night, instead of us looking at the sky and seeing stars, instead we could have looked at the sky and watched a display of Calvary every night. He could have done that as if it were God playing a movie of the gospel on the sky. He could have chosen to do that. He could have chosen to make trees pop out gospel tracks. He could have chosen any way he wanted, but instead he chose to use men whose lives have been transformed by the gospel and ladies who've been saved by the gospel and the cross of Christ. God's chosen to use us to be the ones who will proclaim the gospel. You see, salvation is all of him, but he's chosen to use us in the process. 
And so come with me now into verse 15. This is a magnificent thing to be commissioned, to be called by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Yes, the Lord of Sabaoth, the Lord of the hosts of multitudes of armies to choose to use us to carry the gospel to others. Look at it in verse 15. And how shall they preach except they be sent? He has commissioned us. He has sent us. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. So that brings me to my second point. My second thing is this, if you're writing them down. The second one is this, we, sent by God, get to partake in His goodness. We, sent by God, get to partake in His goodness. You see, God says, here, take my gospel and carry it out. And then you and I, brothers and sisters, we get to carry it. And when we carry it, we get an image, a reflection of glory upon ourselves. The words, how beautiful are the feet of them that carry the gospel. And there are so many on this planet today that still have not heard. Can I get you to slide your eyes back up to verse 14, brethren? How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? I will not go into the statistics this morning, but they are overwhelming. The numbers of people on this planet, yea, even in our nation, who have no understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Oh, in our nation, they'll wear a shirt and a hat that says, I love Jesus. They'll hold you up at gunpoint. They have no idea what their hat means. Gospel hasn't transformed their lives. And I'll place that squarely on the shoulders of those of us who are gospel carriers. If the gospel's transformed your life, friend, you should be telling other people proclaiming it, carrying the gospel, telling people about the glorious message of Jesus. You see, the gospel message for us has been commanded to carry. Jesus Himself, Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, Jesus just said, All power is given unto Me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore, Matthew 28, 19, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, not just the ones you like, Teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always. What a glorious promise that the Commander has promised to be with us as we go. And He will make the Gospel come clear as we proclaim it out of our mouths. And His Holy Spirit will stir them to hear so that they will believe and they will call upon Him. And He's promised to be with us even unto the end of the world. So can I commend you this morning, church, take this seriously. Take the words of Scripture seriously. If the Gospel's transformed your life, it should be causing you to love the Gospel and carry the Gospel, proclaim it to others, yea, even to the nations. And be careful, friend. Don't let your life undermine your message. For the gospel should have transformed your life. We'll get to Romans 12, I promise, sometime within the next 12 months. 
Romans 12 gets very practical about how this should happen. So if you want, sometime during the week, take a, picture, take a peek over to chapter 12 and see how should this be working. We keep saying it, the gospel is supposed to transform my life, and we've stuck around for the last 18 months in the first 10 chapters. We've been seeing a lot of theory about the gospel should be transforming our lives we get to chapter 12, we'll get to a lot of practical of how it will. And I have a feeling that I'm going to put the brakes on when we get to chapter 12. We might have to have one week per verse. Let these things sink into your life. If you're not different now because of what the gospel has done in your life, if you're not different now, you're going to undermine the message that you're trying to tell other people. Be careful. I dare say that even the thought of God calling you or your child to go live in some nameless place terrifies you. I think that there are some of us who would claim to be Christians this morning that say, Pastor, if God wanted me to go live in some nameless place on a dirt floor, house kunai and eat cow cow for the next couple of years, that terrifies me. I wonder if you'd be willing to do it for the sake of the gospel. For there are people who have not heard. How shall they hear without a preacher? How will they call on him of whom they have not heard? I wonder if the gospel has changed your life enough to where you would be willing to do anything. Let goods and kindred go this mortal life also. For he has sent you. And we, being sent by Him, get to partake in His glorious goodness. And when you go, oh, you will have beautiful feet. I'm tempted this morning to take my shoes and socks off and throw them up here, throw my feet up here on the pulpit. Let you see some beautiful feet. I'll be honest, my feet are not beautiful. I know it. Some ugly feet. It's not saying, the verse doesn't say you carry the gospel and all of a sudden you'll be a foot model. You'll have manicured toes. It's not what it says. I don't know, is it manicured or pedicured? Your feet will be called beautiful. Here's what that means. You say, Pastor, I don't understand it. Let me show you what it means. It means that for those who need the message, when they see the messenger come, Oh, in that first moment, they may not understand how important it is, but when that message comes, and it comes so clearly that they'd understand that this message is changing my life, all of a sudden, the one who brought me the message is the one who I love. How beautiful. Even the stinky, ugly parts of his body, his feet are so beautiful now because I love the fact that this gospel message has changed my life. And I won't bore you with some of the wonderful things that have been said to me. Oh, I'm nothing but a man. I'm nothing but a human being and I'm fallen and I know what parts of me are fallen. I know them oh too well. And yet I have the awesome opportunity to sit and talk to people and share with them. Yes, maybe they've put their trust in Christ and they need just a little bit more of a glimpse of how the gospel can keep transforming the rest of their life. And I sit and I listen and they say, Pastor, thank you so much. And I think to myself, 
I just have ugly feet. I walk across our campus in the middle of a school day, 150 little kids playing on a playground. And guess what they do? They stop playing. Hi, Pastor Matt. Hi, Pastor Matt. I walk down the hallway and I have to remind them that they're in a school and they have to be quiet. They're not allowed to shout. You know what that is? That's beautiful feet. I don't think my feet are beautiful. Those little kids think they're beautiful. Friend, we, sent by God, carrying the gospel, get to partake in His goodness. I don't understand it. So I might just invite you. Join me. Join me in carrying the gospel. There's some significance here. I asked you earlier if you'd put a piece of paper into Isaiah 52. So if you'll just bring that piece of paper from Isaiah 52, put it back in Romans 10. I want you to see Isaiah 52 for a few minutes with me. Because what happens here, this quote, Romans chapter 10 and verse 15, you'll notice it says, as it is written. That comes from Isaiah 52 and verse 7. I don't have time to develop all of this. There's so much here. If you notice, over the last few weeks, Romans chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11 are chock full of as it is written, as it is written, as it is written. The reason for that is because these these portions of Romans 9, 10, and 11 are meant to draw Jewish minds to the promises of God. What about Israel? We had a whole session on that. What about Israel? And so as Paul would throw out, as it is written, he knows that these Jewish people know these passages in the Old Testament. So when he says, as it is written, he's drawing from their minds a whole context that you and I as Gentile believers don't have. So I need to bring in some of that Jewish context for Isaiah 52. How shall they preach except they are sent as it is written how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel and so the context for Isaiah 52 especially in verse 7 the context is this the people of Israel have been in exile for many years they're in Babylon they're away from the place that they love and being in exile their hearts are broken I think even of Psalm 137, where they made a statement like this, we are away in exile in Babylon, and the phrase, you might have heard this phrase, we have hung our harps on the willows. Modern translation of that is, I broke my guitar. I don't even want to play it anymore. I hung my harp up on the tree. I don't want to play this harp anymore because I have no reason to sing Further in Psalm 137, I wish my right hand would forget how to play. My heart is broken here in exile. I have no reason to sing when I think of Jerusalem being in ruins. In other words, that's where my heart is at. I want to be back in Jerusalem. Oh, talk about Jerusalem. I'll sing for joy. I'll grab my harp and let my right hand play. But now... I'm in exile. I'm not where I want to be. I'm not where I should be. 
And now in Isaiah 52, there's a prophecy here that they will not always be in exile. That they will then come back. In fact, verses 1 to 6 speaks of people coming to Babylon and telling those exiles, you will come back. Now see this in Isaiah 52 and verse 7. Here it is. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Here's, here, just get this picture. Here's people who have broken their guitars and told their right hand, stop learning how to play. There's no more music that's going to come from my life. And here we sit, weeping on the banks of the river beside Babylon. And we look upon the mountains, and here comes someone running with a message. And you know what the message is? Jerusalem has been set free. You can return, exiles. You get to go home. And their hearts are overflowing with joy as they say, Oh, God has not forgotten me. My God reigns. I'm headed back to Zion. That's the mountain next to Jerusalem. I'm headed back to Zion. I'm going back to where I will have peace with God. And Paul takes that verse, brings it straight to the Gospel. And he goes, Oh, you and I, separated from God. In our sin, we were hopeless. Might as well break our guitars and forget how to sing with joy and just sit on the side of the bank and just hate our lives. But then somebody comes with the gospel and we say, oh, we can be at peace with God. How beautiful are the feet of them who bring good tidings of great joy. Now, he doesn't just stop there in Isaiah 52. And the Jewish people knew it. Their minds are right there. As soon as he reads this in, in Romans 10, a Jewish man's mind goes to Isaiah 57. So let me, uh, 52, let me keep going. I want you to see verses 8 and 9. Here you go, verse 8. Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice. With a voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion. They won't see, watch, the watchmen won't see from afar, one watchtower to the next watchtower. No, they're going to see each other eye to eye because they get to come down off the watchtowers. They get to be together and sing together and they're going to rejoice. Why? Because Zion has been set free. Because God is in control. He reigns. He's the king over the universe. He's in charge of everything. And we get to go be at peace with Him. Now verse 9. Break forth into joy. Sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem, even all those places that have been burned and torn down. For the Lord hath comforted His people. He hath redeemed Jerusalem. Now verse 10. It sure would certainly seem like this would be a fantastic message for Israel. Verse 10. The Lord hath made bare His holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And it sure seems like in this moment he says, the Lord has made bare his holy arm. He's rolled up his sleeves as if, it, he, if we were to put a human picture to this. He rolled up his sleeves and he showed his mighty holy arm. This is not in some kind of sensual way. He's showing his might and his muscles. He rolls up his sleeve and he says, have a look at this. I am not weak. I'm mighty. And in this moment, 
it seems like it would make a lot of sense to say the Lord has shown his mighty arm to Israel. Because Israel is the one in need. But that's not what it says. Look at verse 10. The Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations. This isn't just for Israel. You see, God's been in... God's been trying and working for all the world ever since the beginning. And the Jewish man would say, oh no, I get to be right with God because I'm Jewish and I'm in this right lineage. And God says, no, I laid bare my holy arm for all the nations to see. And in case you think that maybe this is a threat against the nations, he clarifies it with the rest of the verse. Verse 10, And all the ends of the earth shall see, not the threat of God, but the salvation of God. So all the nations, and if you want to be technical about that, all the different groups of people with different languages around the world where you and I in Papua New Guinea get the greatest accumulation of languages in the world, 800 languages on our one little island. 16,000 languages around the world. And God says, I lay bare my holy arm so that 16,000 nations around the world can know that I reign. I make things right. You might be apart from me, but I put my son on the cross and I'm sending messengers throughout the whole world so that all of the world doesn't have to stand at watch from a distance, but instead they can come together and rejoice and sing together and lift up the praise of Him who does reign. I won't take the time to read verse 11 and 12, but they make one very clear statement that if you're going to be a carrier, a proclaimer, one whose feet will be beautiful, you better make sure that you're living a clean life. That's verse 11 and 12. Now come down to chapter 53 and verse 1 because Paul's going to quote it when we get back to Romans 10. Who has believed our report? And by the way, I hope you recognize Isaiah 53. The suffering servant, Jesus. This is the very same chapter in which you will find he was bruised for our iniquities all we like sheep have gone astray, and it pleased the Father to bruise him. All of that comes in chapter 53. Isaiah tied this with the gospel. Paul tied it with the gospel. And now see Isaiah 53 and verse number 1. This is, this is a display of the glory and the might of God. Who has believed our report? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is, not everybody. And the second question, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? In my Bible, I drew a straight line from arm in verse 1 to arm in verse 10. The Lord has made bare His holy arm for the nations to see, 53 and 1. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The answer, everyone. He makes His might known to all the nations, but who believes it? Not everyone. 
for some will reject. Remember, salvation is all of God. And yet He chooses to include you and I in the process. If you do not choose to trust Him, you do not believe Him, you do not call upon Him, you fall in the category of those who have rejected Him. Jesus' words in John chapter 3, I didn't come to condemn the world, I came to save the world. If you don't believe on the Son, you don't have life. You need to call upon Him. So who has believed our report? Not all of them. Now come back with me to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, and now we'll see verse 16. They have not all believed the, the gospel. They have not all obeyed the gospel, verse 16. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? That was Isaiah 51, 53, verse 1. And that'll bring us into verse 17, and this will be my third and last point for this morning. Verse 17. So then faith cometh by healing, uh, hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Third point is this. It's all because of him. I've said it already, but I want it to be very clear. It's all because of Him. Faith, hearing, and the Word. You cannot come to salvation apart from hearing the Gospel. Please, don't buy into... Brothers and sisters, please don't buy into some kind of idea that says, if I will just live a good moral life, then people will see that, and then they will also want to live a good moral life. No, you must proclaim the gospel. Jesus died for your sins, friend. It has to come out of your mouth. How will they believe on Him of whom they have not heard? It's not, how shall they believe on Him of whom they have not seen moral living? They have to hear it. You have to proclaim it. Faith comes by hearing and hearing from the Word of God. Your faith, friend, your faith is not some kind of nebulous thing that's out there. I hear people say things like, oh, pastor, I have my faith. No! Faith is not something that you just go and pick off the shelf and I've got my faith and I don't understand it, but I'm just going to believe it. No, your faith is rooted in hearing the gospel. God sent His Son, Jesus, to take your sin. I believe that. That's my faith. I don't grab my faith off the wall and say, oh, I have my faith, and so I'm going to carry this around. No, my faith is in Jesus. So then faith comes by hearing, hearing the Word of God. So do not let your faith be rooted in foolishness. I'll finish by coming back to that picture of David in Mayanam. There's David sitting in the courtyard between the inner gate and the outer gate. Such a sad picture. And I know that you and I, sometimes we want to make David to be out, out to be the hero and everything. David had a lot of mistakes in his life. Moses did too. Abraham did too. Every single one of us did. And there's David sitting in the courtyard. But can I take this same picture and repaint it? On a cosmic scale. The king. The king of kings. And lord of lords. Did not sit back in the courtyard. And wait for a message. He went to battle for you. 
And I don't know if you ever thought deeply about who the enemy was. I submit to you this morning the enemy was God's own wrath. You say, Pastor, how is that? Let me share a verse with you. This is Matthew 10, verse 28. Jesus speaking. Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And I know that some of you are thinking that that must be a reference to the devil, but never in the Bible, not a single one time, does it ever say, fear Satan or fear the devil. It doesn't say it once. But if you go looking for fear God, you'll find it 150 times. Fear God. You know why? Because His wrath abides upon your sin. And so if we were to take this picture, God, the King, the Sovereign of the universe, went to battle on your behalf. And He knew that there was only one way to get rid of His own wrath, and that was to place it upon His Son, Jesus. Can I say it like this? The moment He gave up the ghost, the war was over. Jesus died. Oh, there will be skirmishes and there will be battles. That's called sanctification. There's going to be skirmishes and there's going to be battles. But the war is over. The wrath of God has gone upon His Son. And now the message just has to get to you. I might say it like this. Those who have not heard are the ones who are sitting in the courtyard without hope. At a low point, waiting. But when the gospel comes, oh, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of them who bring the gospel. Oh, friend, could I ask you this morning, if you are not a believer, can you see that Jesus took your place on the cross and the war is already finished? He conquered. Yes, and in defeating wrath, He also defeated Death, hell, sin, and the grave. It's all taken. And it's out of the way. This is good news. All that you have to do, the word of faith, it's in in thy mouth, it's in the heart. All you have to do is trust Him. And so can I ask you this morning, would you trust Jesus? Would you join me this morning? Would you stand with me for a moment of invitation with heads bowed and eyes closed? Would you stand with me this morning and give an invitation and ask you, If you've never put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, would you just come down this aisle? Would you join me here at the front? And I'll have somebody take you off to the side and show you from Scripture how you can be saved. At the same time, I'm going to also ask brothers and sisters, you put your trust in the Lord Jesus. The altar's open. Could I invite you to come? Perhaps you need to make things right with God. You say, maybe, God, I know. I've had the message. It's in my mouth, and I've just not opened my mouth to proclaim it. And I want to get things right with you, God. Maybe my life has been in the way of the message. And so I want to get my life to be right so that my message isn't undermined. Could I ask you to join me in the altar? Would you come and pray? Perhaps you're here this morning and you say, Pastor, I think that God might be calling me to be full-time vocational ministry, be a preacher. I don't know if that's going to be a pastor Or a missionary. I don't know how God's going to use me. But I'd like to do that. Would you come this morning? The altar's open. You come.
If you've not put your trust in Christ, many are praying for you. Could I ask you to come and just meet me here at the front? I'd love to pair you off with someone who can show you from Scripture. The word is nigh you. It's right there on the tip of your tongue. Thou shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead and shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. Thou shalt be saved. close in prayer in just a moment. I'll ask one more time. Friend, don't push away the gospel. Is there one here this morning you say, Pastor, I'd love to put my trust in Christ. Would you just come? We won't embarrass you, I promise. There will be rejoicing in the presence of the angels. Is there one? Father, I think of the one who carried the gospel so clearly for me. Oh, how beautiful are the feet of them who preach the gospel. Lord, I pray as you draw us to carry that gospel, I pray we would not shirk back from it, be lazy, hide behind one last mountain. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful to carry the gospel. Let our lives match our message, but let our lives not be the message. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful to proclaim the gospel. And then, Lord, we're going to leave everything else up to you. Let your Holy Spirit do his calling work. The gospel do his awakening work. Father, we put it all in your hands, for it is all of you. Thank you for involving us. What a privilege to be commissioned by the King. Which in your beautiful name I ask these things. Amen.